Welcome to the Health from the Source podcast, where we're dedicated to educating people about health, ancestral nose-to-tail nutrition, regenerative agriculture, and the interplay between environment, health, and sustainability. Welcome back, podcast three. And in this episode, we're going to have a really deep dive with Richard into animal-based nutrition and uh, really starting to explore in depth the ancestral health principles. So Richard, just from the the last podcast where you spoke about it, could you give us a quick um, uh, recap around you know, the ancestral health principles and, and what drives this um, nutrient-based diet? Yep, of course. So as we talked about in the, the first episode uh, where we talked through ancestral nutrition, Obviously, that forms a really core part of our, our mission and what we're trying to support here at Vital Origin. And so a few things within such a nutrition or, you know, the so-called sort of paleolithic hunter-gatherer type diet, um, that really forms the premise. So again, we're genetically based. We talked about how we're sort of the uh, Stone Agers living in the Space Age. So our bodies biologically are still very much from that era. And so we need to try to align our, our food and our lifestyles more in line with what our biology is expecting. So that's kind of the premise of that ancestral health approach. And with that, in the last uh, talk, we talked about more the aspects of things to remove as far as industrialized modern foods. So a lot of the monocrops and grains and things like that, how those and can be potentially... foods. Exactly. Yeah. And so anything that, you know, has been produced in a, a bag, a box, and those types of things, it's probably not a, a natural food for us. And we want to try to minimize those. And we only touched a little bit on the importance of animal-based nutrition. So we'll dive into a little bit more about that on, on this episode. And with that, obviously, comes the nose-to-tail approach. And so when we talk about ancestral nutrition and hunter-gatherer type diets, nothing ever went to waste. So when they hunted an animal, that animal was consumed virtually nose to tail. Everything that was edible was eaten, which is very different and in contrast to our diet nowadays where we really just eat the muscle meat and nothing else. Even the collagenous cuts or even bone in, skin on, even those types of things aren't consumed much, let alone the organs. And the organs are a really important part of the animal where a lot of the nutrient density actually lies. And also some interesting things like peptides, which we can talk about. Um, and it's interesting because from that ancestral health perspective, when we look back, one, two generations only, we consumed a lot of those foods, right? Uh, lamb's fry and all those types of things. So not long ago, we knew that we should be consuming these, but nowadays we don't. So we kind of need to get back to that ancestral kind of way of eating and get back to some of our traditional types of foods. Um, and it's really important when we look at nutrient density. And again, the diet should really be formed around nutrient density, meaning we have the most amount of nutrients, whether macro or specifically micronutrients per calorie, whereas modern industrial food is very high calorie, but very nutrient poor. It's kind of the opposite of what we want when we think about what is a good human diet. And we'll dive into a little bit more about that. And um, there was this perception um, that organ meat was poor people's food. And there was a <laughs> bit of a, a stigma around that um that uh you didn't want to eat that because you know that's that was the cheap food and so forth when and it's refreshing to see that some of that narrative is starting to change when people are really understanding the nutrient density that mm. exists in these organ meats yeah yeah absolutely and you know you look at a lot of foods nowadays and this is probably one of the major drivers of the 
epidemic we see with health right now is so much of the cheap food is just a bunch of industrial processed, really nutrient poor foods so cereals and breads and those types of things. So there's lots of that that's available. Um, but a lot of the animal meats traditionally have been relatively expensive bar the, the offal, which usually, yeah, people kind of threw to the sides and didn't think too much of, but now we're starting to recognize the importance of incorporating those back in. And what's nice mm -hmm. is it can be cost-effective for people too. Obviously, if you can get whole food offal, it is usually cheaper than a lot of the, um, muscle meats and things like that. So it's a great addition from an overall nutrient density perspective into the diet. So um bottle origin produces uh, a range of encapsulated free-dried um offal um options heart kidney liver um and the new blend product that has been brought to market can you tell us a little bit more about you know the specific requirements of um these different types of organs and and how they can help um in a positive diet absolutely I think to, to really get this point across, we need to revisit again a little bit of our biology and physiology, because obviously there's a bit of a narrative against a lot of animal-based foods, and particularly uh, offal and, and organs. But when we look at what our body needs, there are specific nutrients that we need. Often we think about essential nutrients and non-essential nutrients. Essential nutrients basically mean that we actually do need to get them from the diet or we're likely to die. <laughs> Um, there's also conditionally essential, which means we can kind of make them if we have certain things. But uh, to keep it simple, we'll talk about essential and non-essential. And when we look at the bigger picture, and we talked about this last time uh, on the episode where we talked about things like the digestive system of humans and how we're more alike to carnivores and scavengers and also expensive tissue hypothesis. So there's a lot of things that have shaped our biology and physiology to suggest how we should potentially be eating. But to take that a step further, we look at these essential nutrients or even things like micronutrients and how deficiencies in these can affect health. So I think if we start from that perspective, it really paints the picture quite clearly about why we need to incorporate some of these foods into the diet and then why things like organ meats can be really beneficial to include because they are so dense in these specific nutrients. So when we look at these types of things, we can start again from that nutrient deficiency perspective. Now. A lot of the, actually worldwide, some of the most common nutrient deficiencies uh, are things like iron, zinc, even vitamin A, B vitamins. B vitamins was important. This is why nowadays they fortify foods. So a lot of the grains and things like that are fortified with nutrients because they're quite low and deficient naturally mm -hmm. in those, those nutrients. So they actually fortify them when really we could just get them naturally. But it shows the fact that those nutrients are so important that we have to add them into our food because if we don't have them, we'll have disease. Starting with protein, often protein is one of the most important. We see a lot of protein malnourishment around the world, particularly in developing nations, third world nations. Mm. It's one of the major uh, issues worldwide. And we see um, things like Quashicor, um, what's the other one? There's another uh, disease with a M, which I'm drawing a blank on at the moment, which is basically protein malnutrition, which is rampant in a lot of places in the world. And I'll share some resources in the uh, podcast episode notes for people which can link to research. Even the WHO has these things listed where um, these nutrient deficiencies are very high, particularly in Asian countries where we see a lot of vegetarian and vegan diets. 
and it leads to quite significant issues. And then we can go down the list. So protein is one of the main macronutrients. Again, it's a essential. So we have specific essential amino acids, which we need to get in the diet. And even from that, we have uh, things which are certain amino acids, which are higher in say collagenous cuts. So part of collagen are things like glycine, proline, hydroxyproline, and we can only get those from animal-based nutrients. And then more of the essential amino acids, which make up protein, many of them, the best source, and there's a, a protein digestibility index, which gives us a, an idea of how bioavailable the protein is. Animal-based foods are always on the top of the list. They contain the complete range of amino acids, whereas most plant-based foods don't. So again, that's sort of our so what, core. What do you mean by bioavailable? I've heard that before so, and, um, you know, it, yeah, what's, what's the meaning of that? Yep. That, that term will probably come up a couple of times in this episode. Bioavailable means how, how easily utilized, how easily absorbed and utilized are the nutrients for us as humans. Right. And so there's different bioavailability for, for different animals. Obviously, when we're talking about us, we're talking homo sapiens. So bioavailable means can we absorb and digest the food and how well does it get utilized in our body? Right. Because the whole point of eating is to incorporate the nutrients that we're eating into our body because it's always turning over. So that's what it means. And there's different validated scores and measures that they can use. Um, everyone has slightly different measures. Protein, one of the best ones is this DIAS uh, digestibility index for amino acid scores, I believe it it's, uh, stands for. So yeah, we'll come across that a couple of times because there's going to be some interesting comparisons when we look at bioavailability of say plant-based protein or plant-based nutrients versus animal-based. And we'll, we'll get to that one soon. So, so um, simply it means that, you know, a plant-based protein can be ingested, but not absorbed into the body where an animal-based protein would be um, incorporated into the body as well. So, so you actually get the nutrient benefit of ingesting that protein, where if you had a, a plant-based protein, it would just pass through the system. Correct. Maybe an oversimplification of pass through, it would still, it would still get utilized, but it just may not get utilized as effective as an animal-based. So you can still get away with it, um, but most, most of the time plant-based proteins or plant-based diet advocates, they're going to have to be very specific about their protein sources to make sure that they're including a lot of things that give them a range of amino acids. Whereas for animal-based proteins, you can literally just get all your amino acids from any source. It's always a complete protein. Um, I think soy might be one of the ones that is relatively complete, but again, it usually comes with things like carbohydrates and other issues, whereas meat is a, yeah, a much better source. And from the absorption and utilization perspective of those amino acids, animal-based always tops the list. There's also an interesting one, uh, interesting theory. Technically, they call still it uh, a hypothesis from a scientific perspective, but there's very good data behind it. There's something called the protein leverage hypothesis, and they look at this across all species and animals, not just humans, but they're applying it to humans now in um, issues of diabetes and metabolic disorders, which basically suggests until an organism meets its minimum protein requirements, it will continue to have a, a signal to eat and so be hungry until that protein requirement is met. So people who chronically don't get enough protein will constantly feel hungry and be uh, tend to overeat. 
It's a very interesting area, and we see this uh, quite well supported with randomized controlled trials in, in animals. And now we're seeing growing, growing potential data in humans as well. So again, really shines a light on the importance of protein. Would that drive some of the obesity issues that are being well recorded in society at the moment is that people continue eating just because they're not getting the right nutrients and the body's saying, I need this nutrients. So you may need to eat more, but they're never actually supplying that nutrient to um, affect the satiety center. Yep. Yep. That is one of the hypotheses at the moment is that we're uh, calorie, calorie rich, but nutrient poor. So what's the saying? Uh, overfed, but undernourished is a sort of colloquial term going around for that where, yeah, now we're eating all this food, which is devoid of nutrients and we keep eating more and more to try to get those nutrients. But with that comes more calories. And obviously there is an aspect of if you're consuming more calories, that's got to go somewhere in the body. Yeah. So it's a very, very interesting area of research, but so that's, that's just protein. And, and that's a big part because again, protein is a very important component of our bodies. It literally makes up all of our body. So our muscles, our bone, our hormones, a lot of our uh, neurotransmitters, pretty much everything here is made of proteins. So we want to make sure we're, we're getting enough of that. Yeah. And so, you know, protein is obviously a very important component, but a, a really key part where animal-based nutrients really shine and stand out is from some of the micronutrients. So those are going to be things like your vitamins and minerals, which most people are familiar with. And one of the, actually the I'm pretty sure by WHO, the single uh, most common nutrient deficiency worldwide is iron and the effects on anemia and things like that. And iron, obviously, I think most people are pretty familiar that one of the best sources of iron is going to be red meat. And there's an interesting difference between plant-based iron and animal-based iron. So in animals, it comes as a heme iron, and in plants, it's a non-heme. And it's just a, a slight difference in that chemistry of the molecule, but our bodies that use more of the, or they really just use the heme iron. It's more preferential and that's utilized in our red blood cells. It's utilized in many aspects of enzyme function, things like that. So iron is a massive component. And again, there's so many people now struggling with anemia. So from there really stands out and with iron and anemia, often B12 is another major component. And B12 is actually one of the key B vitamins that you can only get from animal sources. There is no such thing as a plant source of B12. And B12 is so important, and, and so is iron, actually, that these deficiencies, especially in infancy or gestation, so if a mother um, is you know, growing a child or if they've recently been born and breastfeeding, if they have deficiencies in these nutrients, it will cause permanent brain damage and they'll have failure to thrive, they won't grow properly. So the, these nutrients are super, super important. And again, that, that shows us that if these nutrients, which are so important to growing a human, being a healthy human into adulthood, if they're this important and they're only from animal sources, intuitively, this would suggest that we probably need to be consuming animals in our diet to, to live a healthy lifestyle. And of course, nowadays we have supplementation, which is amazing. We've got amazing technology and medicine now, but if we think from that ancestral perspective and first principles about what should a human eat to be healthy without supplementation, obviously meat ties into that. And there are a multitude of other nutrients, zinc, mostly only from animal-based or at least more again, bioavailable from animal-based foods, vitamin A. And a lot of people mix up 
beta carotene and vitamin A, they're actually quite different. So beta carotene, and I can share some research on this, needs to be converted into the active vitamin A retinol in our body. But that conversion can be really poor. It can be anywhere in the range of like 3% to 20% conversion based on your genetics. And so you can just get that from eating animal foods such as liver. Liver is going to be a, a key source of vitamin A. Um, other nutrients, choline, we can list off a few. Omega-3 is another major one. So omega-3, I think most people are familiar with, usually associated with fish oil. And these omega-3s are basically long chains of fats. And they, the key to omega-3 fatty acids are going to be DHA and EPA. A lot of people think you can get omega-3s from plant-based sources, things like flaxseed, hemp seed, but that's actually a form called ALA. And it's the same thing like vitamin A. Our body can convert some of that ALA into EPA and DHA, but that conversion can be very poor for people. And omega-3 is another thing, lots of research now around cardiovascular improvement, again, during gestation infancy, a lot of benefits. So it suggests yet again, we sort of need these nutrients from animal sources in our diet, um, with the caveat being you can get it from seaweed, but we, we likely didn't get it from that. We likely got it from, from fish and, and other sources. So we see this trend when we look at, you know, the bioavailability of different nutrients when we compare plant-based versus animal-based and pretty much across the board, every time the animal-based nutrients are more bioavailable and usually come in a, in a form which is active for a human to utilize, right? So very, very important. Is there much, what's, what's the difference between um, the, uh, micronutrients bioavailability between, say, fish, a monogastric animal such as a pig or a chicken, and a ruminant such as a, a cow or a sheep. Is there, is there any difference within the animal um, sources? I don't. I don't think the the nutrient makeup of the animal is as dependent on its digestive system as its environment. So monogastric versus ruminant. And for those who are not familiar, monogastric means like one stomach. It's usually able to consume lots of different foods, an omnivorous type of diet. We're monogastric, pigs are monogastric, um, which unfortunately means they can eat anything and everything and they usually get fed a lot of crap. Um, yeah. Ruminants have a very particular digestive system to break down plant fibers. And so must eat things like grass. And um, I don't know if those shape things so much as Again, as I said, the environment, for instance, fish, you know, we know that cold water fish, things like salmon and things that live in colder waters are going to have a higher, um, higher makeup of omega-3s because those long chain fatty acids make their membranes more fluid and prevent them from, and their cells from becoming too rigid. And so it's probably more an environmental due to the cold water. Due to the cold water exactly. So if you have more saturated or monounsaturated fats in your cells, then the cell will be a little bit more rigid, which can have benefit as well. We need some rigidity in the cell membrane. So the cell membrane doesn't easily break or become too porous, but it also needs to maintain some level of fluidity. And that's where, you know, we'll probably talk a little bit about saturated fat versus monounsaturated fat and, you know, tallow and those things in a later episode, mm. which is another core product. But I think the environment probably shapes it, but a lot of it is quite similar. When you look at animal meat, it's a very similar composition, even ours, right? They're made up of amino acids. 
certain types of fatty acids. Um, it's, I would say there's a level of conservation across a lot of animals as to what the body is made of. When, one of the other things to consider when we look at, say, plant-based diets or, or plants in general versus animals, um, and this is an area that's been growing quite a lot, is this aspect of something called plant anti-nutrients or, or just anti-nutrients in general, um, which is a bit of a term for these compounds which can either bind to other nutrients or compounds which can prevent the absorption of nutrients in our digestive system. So this is things like uh, oxalates, phytates, tannins, saponins, they have enzyme inhibitors. So these are an area with growing research now. And, and of course, there's probably a few things where it's been a bit overblown as, as the role that they play in, in nutrition and, and digestion. But there certainly is data to show that some of these compounds can prevent specifically mineral absorption. So things like iron, we know that having a diet high in uh, phytates can prevent the absorption of iron and zinc, uh, especially. And when we look at a lot of the foods that contain those, it's going to be things particularly like grains, seeds, those types of foods, legumes. And it makes evolutionary sense that the plant wants to protect and conserve itself. So what people don't realize is what you're consuming when you're consuming grains and most plant foods is you're consuming usually a part of the plant, which is its way to reproduce, right? So seeds and things of that nature. And obviously that's going to be an important part of the plant and it can't run away. It can't really defend itself physically. So plants are quite interesting in that they've had, you know, millions, billions of years of evolution to produce quite phenomenal compounds to protect themselves against pests and and other types of microbes. And so those compounds typically will kill small pests or small types of microbes. And originally we thought for us, it would be no problem. But what we're finding now is particularly in those susceptible with GI issues, autoimmune disease, things of that nature, that a lot of these plant compounds may actually be causing some issue. So gluten is sort of the hallmark one. It's a particular yeah, right. protein from grains that a lot of people are familiar with. And gluten, the problem with it, not only can it be associated with uh, celiac disease, which is a, an allergy to gluten, which then damages the lining of the gut and potentially prevents some absorption of nutrients. But we see now that proteins like gluten, gliadin, wheat germagglutin, a few of these typical proteins found in grains, they actually, uh, they actually cause leaky gut. So they cause the intestinal lining to become somewhat damaged and irritated and inflamed, which then allows food particles and various things to pass through. So we're starting to see now with modern research that some of these compounds found in plants that are there to protect the plant may actually be affecting our physiology. So this kind of rolls back into that perspective of, all right, well, if we want to think about what is the optimal diet for a human being, these things that are a nutrient poor, bioavailable, poor from a human perspective, but then to add on top of that, it's actually causing low level either toxicity or damage to our gut. It suggests yet again that we're probably more leaning towards the importance of animal-based nutrition in our diet and that we want to avoid some of these specific foods and other things. So things like uh, oxalates and other things are found in leaves. So kale, for example, the traditional sort of plant superfood is extremely high mm -hmm. in oxalates. And now there's literature to show that both kids and adults who are doing a lot of green smoothies and things like that actually end up with kidney stones and they have a lot of oxalate in their blood and there's a whole host of, of issues. So we're, we're learning more and more about these potential downsides of these 
um, plant compounds and plant toxins. And there's probably a component of in moderation. I think it's, we can say humans are definitely omnivorous. We have quite a, a amazing ability to consume a wide range of diets, which is probably why we were able to take over the globe and go into every type of possible environment that you can imagine because we can eat so many different things. Um, but if we're talking about what is optimal and what are the things that must be in the diet, it's pretty clear that some of these animal-based foods with the nutrients we've talked about must be included in the diet. And what are your thoughts of um, the carnivore diet? So um, that's the diet of, of almost, you know, completely selectively eating animal-based um, products, so a pure meat diet. Hmm. I think as a, as a clinician, I always try to take the middle ground and I realize that there's always something that can work for someone, um, even plant-based. There's a lot of people who can thrive on plant-based and seem to be fine and don't have any nutrient deficiencies. Um, but for a lot of people, carnivore can be quite life-changing for them. And it's still a new dietary approach. So unfortunately, we don't have a lot of science and research, which that's changing because there's actually some philanthropy and, and private groups which are funding research now. But uh, I see it with clinical validity in treating certain things because it's basically a very high level elimination diet. So people who have chronic health issues, uh, particularly autoimmune disease, skin issues, these types of conditions, mm. they seem to react extraordinarily well to a carnivore based diet, which is very similar to an extreme um, elimination diet. For example, we sometimes use something called an elemental diet and an elemental diet we would use in GI issues, autoimmune, various conditions where they're basically just consuming uh, like a meal replacement shake of amino acids and, and key nutrients, which is not too dissimilar to meat. You're really just getting the amino acids and, and some fats there. So it definitely has clinical purpose, but like anything, it's definitely on the extreme end. However, personally, if, if I were to choose one extreme or the other, uh, I would say the evidence suggests that we're probably more on the carnivore side than the plant side. Um, yep. But there's always nuance in context there. I think there's there's still you know some research into what is the role of fiber and does it really matter? Do we really need it in the diet? Carbohydrates, technically carbohydrates are a non-essential nutrient, so we don't need to consume them in the diet to survive. So there's some interesting, interesting literature there and, and obviously a lot of anecdotes now of people following that diet process for quite a long time and thriving extraordinarily well. So no, it's, it's interesting. I've definitely, I've tried it myself. I've recommended it and utilized it for people uh, as a elimination diet, which has worked quite well. So yeah, we'll see. I'm, I'm certainly a fan of the right use, but I try to stay in the middle and think of moderation and, and personalized dietary approaches based on the individual in front of me, opposed to getting locked into dogma Right. And I think dogma is something we talked about at the beginning where we, we want to be mindful of getting sort of tunnel vision and, and locked into certain beliefs and ideologies opposed to um, what's going to work for that person in front of us or what's going to work for you and figuring out yeah. that. Fantastic. And um, I think I'm probably more on, on the carnival side of the, uh, the diet. So, um, Hopefully I'm getting all my micronutrients as, and uh, amino acids as well. Yep, I would say you are. And I certainly lean more towards the animal-based diet and, you know, with an autoimmune condition myself. 
and over many, many years of trialing different diets and different lifestyle approaches, I've kind of locked in what, what works best for me. And I know if I stick to a predominantly animal-based foods, then I certainly feel much, much better. And so, um, one thing that I, I do get feedback, um, and cause we, we sell a lot of organ meats through Provenir is we get a lot of people saying, I know I need it. I really don't like eating it. The taste is too strong. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's one of the benefits of, I guess, having a freeze dried encapsulated product. Of course, we always recommend whole food. Whole food's always going to be your best source of any nutrition. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, a lot of people simply don't like the texture, don't like the taste. They don't know how to cook it, find it unpalatable. Um, so we still want to try to get a lot of these ancestral health approaches and ancestral nutrition approaches in eating nose to tail. That's why, you know, for Vital Origin, we've provided them in a capsule, which is going to be easy for people to get. And the benefit as well is it's still a whole food source. So a lot of people say use a multivitamin or use a B vitamin or use some type of synthetic vitamin, um, but it's probably better. And there's a, a broader range of nutrients and cofactors, which are slightly more synergistic to get it from whole food source, even though it's been freeze dried, powdered and, and put in a capsule. So yeah, there's definitely mm. benefits from there. And the freeze dry process is, um, a really good process from what I understand in actually preserving um, all the proteins and the micronutrients and it doesn't go through a cooking process. So it, it is uh, in many ways equivalent to eating the, um, the um, whole food. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously we get it out of the animal from Provenir and it gets frozen and it's raw. And then that raw material is sent out to be freeze-dried. So you're preserving all of the nutrients there, which is fantastic because cooking process can denature some vitamins and, and nutrients. Things like B vitamins can be sensitive. Certain, certain nutrients can be sensitive to heat. So we want to be mindful not to cook them. Um, and the nice thing is when you freeze-dry something, it also basically gets rid of any microbes at all. So there's there's no bacteria, there's nothing there which can cause, say, food poisoning or those types of things. So you get a raw source, which is very safe from a food safety perspective because of the drying, and then it can last much longer because anyone who's tried to buy and cook organs, if you've left them in the fridge even for a moment too yep. long, or if you left it on the counter for a moment too long, they, they go bad very quickly. And so it can be very tricky to constantly include them in a diet, especially nowadays where people have very busy lifestyles where you're on the go and yeah, they, they mm. can be quite particular to, to maintain and cook. So this is a much easier solution for those that um, want to include these types of foods in their diet. And for people who um, don't like the taste, it's um, a pretty simple process of a glass of water and a couple of capsules and you've got your uh, daily intake. Yep, that's right. Nice and easy. There's virtually no flavor at all. There might be a bit of a, a smell in the bottle. Uh, but don't let that throw you off. You basically get no taste. Everything's in a gelatin capsule and there's no flavor whatsoever. Um, sort of bringing it down into um, a, a deeper level as well. Um, if we, we're going to eat animal-based products, I think the source of where those animals have come from are really important as well because I imagine that the... Um, the way the animal was raised, the um, feed that it consumed 
which made the animal itself is going to be um, something of you know concern and, and consideration when um, taking uh, nutrient dense um, animal based uh, nutrients yep absolutely I think this is an area where we still probably need more research and it'll be interesting as more people are doing regenerative farming and ethical sort of practices like yourself with Provenir to see you know the difference in quality with meat there has been some studies happening now looking at say pasture raised grass-fed grass-finished organic versus uh, conventionally raised and they're starting to see some improvements a lot of people talk about the increase in omega-3 uh, but that's relatively from an absolute perspective it's quite still a low source of omega but at least it's a bit of a signal to show that there is some change and improvement in the quality of at least that nutrient in the meat and i think that will probably roll over to more of the types of nutrients there's even some interesting stuff looking at now phytonutrients in meat which traditionally phytonutrients are uh, things that come from plants and we're finding right. that grass-fed grass-finished animals because they're consuming those phytonutrients they're actually finding some of that in the meat itself so you get some benefits and aspects of that so i think it's early days still from a research perspective but intuitively and um i guess mechanistically it would make sense that yeah healthier happier animal is probably going to be more nutritious overall and it, it also um because the vast majority of um, ruminants, uh, particularly if we're talking about cattle, um, are fed grains. High energy, low uh, nutrient feed to fatten the animals in a, um, a faster pace so that they're more commercially um, profitable. But that's actually got to translate through to the actual proteins that the animals are creating for themselves, which we are then ingesting. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't know if it changes the protein much, but it definitely changes the fatty acid composition. So a lot of the point of doing that is to marble the meat, which is interesting because what's happening there is something called fatty infiltration. So basically the meat is becoming really poor quality and fat is basically going all into the muscle, which when we see that in humans, usually means that human is very sick and very unwell, right? So it's interesting to see the way to fatten up and make a cow unhealthy is feed it a lot of grains, right? Processed foods and high carbohydrate, low nutrient density foods. Uh, and that's kind of what we see in, in humans as well. So it definitely changes the fatty acid profile, puts more fat into it, potentially more omega-6 versus omega-3 in the fat as well, which is what we're seeing with that grass-fed, grass-finished. So yeah, there's definitely changes that occur in the meat itself based on how that animal is raised. And and what impact would it have on the organs? Because that's that's what we're talking about is the the, the organs being the um, I guess the uh, nutrient superfoods of the of the animals. Would would a high like you know an animal out of a feedlot have a different um, uh, nutrient density in the organs versus a grass-fed? Yeah, I'm not sure about that, actually. I don't know if we have any very clear data on it. Again, I think from a common sense perspective, you would think so. We know, say, people with fatty liver issues that usually goes hand-in-hand -hand with metabolic disorders. Um, so we see excess fat. The liver just looks really unhealthy. 
Um, there's a lot of inflammation around the liver. So I would imagine we would start to see similar things in poorly raised and poorly fed animals, um, mm. which is maybe why you know a lot of those organs aren't necessarily utilized or, or they're put into other areas. But the other factor with that is those animals, because they're so unhealthy, usually require a good amount of antibiotics and other types of drugs yeah. to kind of That's keep them true. healthy because yeah. their lifestyle intrinsically is quite unhealthy. So I'd imagine those types of things would affect it. And one of the other concerns but more nowadays is glyphosate. So glyphosate, people would know maybe as Roundup. And I think we talked about that a little bit when we talked about um, grazing and monocrops and those things. But a lot of the grains that are going to be fed to those animals will be coated in glyphosate. And then we have to consider right, what kind of effects is, is that going to have? Does that infiltrate into the meat, into organs, other areas? You know, these are things that I think we need to investigate more and, and do more research on to see what's happening to our food at a more in-depth level. In fact, the, a lot of the monocultures um, are genetically modified to be glyphosate resistant, such that higher levels of glyphosate can be sprayed on them to get the weeds. And we discussed that in the last one, you know, what's the mm. definition of a weed? Um, uh, out of the the mono uh, culture crops, so um, I know from my myself, and I think you know we might have uh, touched on a bit of research that needs to be done in the uh, um, organ density between feedlotted and grass fed uh, ruminants. Um, but I do know um, from the uh, the industry the rate of uh, organ condemnation through the process in feedlots is really high. Mm. Um, a lot of it does not meet the um, standard requirements for human consumption. Excellent. Yeah, that's great insight. I think that that alone should say a lot about the health of that animal, right? If the, if the organs mm. are quite unhealthy and don't meet the levels of quality for ingesting, then you can imagine what's going on inside that animal and the nutrient density of that animal. Because, you know, they go hand in hand, nutrient density and health do literally go hand in hand. If, if you don't have healthy organs, if you don't have a healthy nutrient-dense diet, one's going to affect the other. So that's very interesting. And it'll be exciting to talk to you more in our coming episode about what that process looks like in comparison of, you know, the conventional approach going to industrial abattoirs versus your approach and the regenerative approach. That's something we can certainly dive into more in a future episode. Sounds good. Look forward to it. Beautiful. All right. Do we want to end it up on that one and save the rest for people on the next episode? Let's do that, Richard. Alrighty. We'll chat then. Thanks for that. Thanks, Chris. Bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the content, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And if you're looking to add in nature's most nutrient-dense foods back into your diet, be sure to check out vitalorigin.com.au and use coupon SOURCE10 at checkout for an extra 10% off. We'll see you guys on the next episode.